You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Almighty God and Sovereign King, uh, we trust in your every promise to love and protect your people in life and in death, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our world is not safe. Our world is not safe. In 1993, the American art political scientist Samuel Huntington wrote an article entitled, The Clash of Civilizations. In that article, he posits this thesis. It's going to be on the screen, and let me read it for you. The fundamental source of conflict in this new world will not be primarily ideological or primarily economic. No, the great divisions among humankind and the dominating source of conflict will be cultural. The clash of civilizations will dominate global politics. The fault lines between civilizations will be the battle lines of the future. Now friends, whether or not you agree with Huntington's thesis, it's actually hard not to look at our world and see something of a clash of civilizations today. And I don't know if you've felt it, but uh, as a country, Australia has kind of had a front row seat to all of it. In fact, we might feel just a little bit squeezed and caught in the middle of all of it. We've experienced and seen the rise of China as it asserts its place in our world. And at the same time, we've experienced something of the withdrawal of America, as it steps back from global institutions and age-old alliances. And all through it all, we've watched the world be dominated by demagogic personalities who parade like medieval kings on our world stage. No, if you turn on the nightly news or just scroll through your news feed, it's not hard to see. Our world is not safe. And we... All of us are caught in this clash of civilizations. We're caught in this conflict of kings. And it's so easy for us to feel unsafe, insecure, and even afraid. And we cannot help but wonder, where can we find true protection in a world gone mad? Where can we find true protection in a world gone mad? In that battle that we just read in Genesis 14, we're going to see and find that true protection. And we're going to tackle it just like we did last week. We're going to look at, in, we're going to look at this chapter in two scenes, and then together we're going to make two commitments for 2021. Two scenes, and then two commitments. Make sense? All right, here we go. Well, how many of you, maybe we had a sample size before, have seen the movie The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies? Any indication? Seen it? Now, I know that genuine Lord of the Rings fans tend to hate on the Hobbit movies like No Tomorrow. I see some nods there. But let me just say, in slight defense, you can stone me outside the campsite later, that the battle scenes in this movie are particularly epic. You see, on the one side, there's the orcs and the wargs of the Misty Mountains. And on the other side, the Men of Dale, the Mirkwood Elves, and the Dwarves of the Iron Hills. You see, the Battle of the Five Armies is this massive display of military might. It's a conflict between the greatest powers of Middle-earth. 
Well, here in Genesis 14, we have an even bigger battle. And it's not a battle of the five armies. No, it's a battle of the nine kings. Let me step you through it. You might have got lost in the names. On the one side, there's the great kings of the east. Amraphel of Shinar, Arioch of Elisar, Tidal of Goyim, and their fearless leader, Ketalaomer, king of Elam. Four kings of the east. And facing off against them are the five smaller kings of Canaan, Bera of Sodom, Bersha of Gomorrah, Shinab of Adma, Shemeber of Zeboim, and the king of Bela. You see, friends, this is an epic battle between the greatest powers of the ancient Near East. For the last 12 years, Ketalama has ruled not just Elam, but the kingdoms of Canaan. You see, of all demagogues, of all dictators, of all emperors, he is the greatest of them all. He is that powerful demagogue, that unassailable emperor who rules the world with an iron fist. In 1773, George McCartney described the British Empire as, quote, the empire on which the sun never sets. What a description. At the height of its power, it was larger than even ancient Rome. You know, as recently as 1913, the British Empire ruled 23% of the world's entire population. And by 1920, it covered one quarter of the Earth's entire landmass. You see, Britain was the empire on which the sun never set. In Genesis 14, Ketalaomer is the king on whom the sun never sets. He, he rules as the greatest power of the ancient world. But, in the 13th year of their colonization, the five kings of Canaan stand up and say, no more. We will have no more of Elam's rule. We will fight for our freedom. So what do they do? Strength in numbers. They form a coalition to overthrow their overlord. But the king of Elam is not so easily challenged. You see, the superpower of the East, he forms his own alliance with three other kingdoms, each more powerful than the kings of Canaan. See, if you thought Ketalaomer was powerful in his own right, no, he now assembles the greatest military force imaginable. And on the 14th year, the Allied Eastern forces, they march on Canaan to crush the rebellion. Nothing, absolutely nothing, will stand in their way. Now, if you've seen The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, you might remember that scene where the orcs of Isengard are raiding the villages of Rohan. And they are destroying absolutely everything in their path as they advance on the Reheric capital of Edoras. Well, that's exactly what's happening in verses 5 to 7. That the kings of the East, they are marching on Canaan and they are destroying everything in their path. Now, these are unarmed villages. They're not helpless bystanders. No, these are great powers in their own right. But not even them. Not even these can stand in Ketalaomer's way. Let me give you a lightning round. Uh, the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Kanaim, they were feared as great giants. Their king was a guy called Og. I mean, that's just great, isn't it? King Og, who was so large that his bed was four meters long, two meters wide, and made out of iron. 
The Zuzites and the Emim were both known for their great height. And the Amalekites were greatly feared. And yet, their entire territory is entirely wiped out by Ketelawamah. Friends, in these verses, Genesis wants us to feel something of the power of the allied eastern forces as they bear down on us. It wants all of us to be shook by the might of King Ketelawamah, who destroys anything and anyone in his way. And so finally, in verse 8, the armies assemble. They meet on the floor of the Sidim Valley south of the Dead Sea. Just imagine for a moment. If Some of you have done national service, so you might have a better sense of it, though I suspect none of you actually went into battle. But just imagine for a moment you're a soldier in the army of Canaan. You're there with your pitchforks and knives or whatever it is that you hold. And based on all the reports that you've heard, you know the odds are stacked against you. That's got to be a terrible situation to be in. About to go into war knowing that you're about to be totally wiped out. The Allied forces are advancing on your unit. And in your heart of hearts, you know that you don't stand a chance. I mean, you'd be absolutely terrified, wouldn't you? And so you should be. Because in verse 10, the armies of Canaan are absolutely pwned. The soldiers of Sodom and Gomorrah are so weak that they either fall into asphalt pits or they flee to the mountains. And it gets worse. The kings of the east, they don't just destroy those armies. It's as if to mock them, they pillage all their stuff. In verse 11, they take all their goods and they take all their food. And they also take Lot. Oh, do you remember Lot? That B-grade character who suddenly stepped to the fore last week? Well, he's back. He's been living in Sodom. And now he's captured. And, and we arrive at this part of Genesis 14 and we think to ourselves, KO, right? Knockout. GG, game over. Who can stand against the kings of the east? Who can challenge the king of Elam? Where? Where can we find safety from the greatest powers of this world? You see, in this clash of civilizations, in this conflict of the kings, where is the one place of true protection? And suddenly, our scene cuts to Abram. Verse 13, Abram is not a king. Unlike all the rest of the people in this chapter, Abram is not a king. He, in fact, is the only one who's not a king. He's simply described as Abram the Hebrew. It's a term that only non-Hebrews would use to describe God's people. It's saying that Abram is not one of the great powers of his age. Abram is not a king. He is an insignificant outsider but we find him exactly where God wants him to be. Near the oaks belonging to Mamre, where God left him in chapter 13. You see, Abram is living in the promises of God. He's living exactly where God would have him. So let's see what happens. Verse 13 comes. A survival of the battle flees to Abram. He invokes his treaty with Lot, and he pleads with Abram to save his life. Abram, Lot is your nephew. He shares in God's promise of protection and blessing. So please, 
Come and rescue him. Come and save him. Save him. Just imagine, Abram goes, what happened to him? Oh, he's been captured. Oh, wait, he's my nephew. I guess I've got to go help him. Who, who captured him? Oh, King, King Ketelauma. Oh, yeah, 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 nah, nah. Let's, that, that's fine. I'll send someone else, right? No, I mean, how in the world is he going to do that? How can this one man take on the greatest military force of his day? And I love it. But it's exactly what he does. It's awfully anticlimactic, isn't it? It's almost like you're, you're gearing up for the great battle and then suddenly it's all over. Genesis, it spends 12 verses kind of amping up the might of Ketelauma. 12 verses making us quake in our boots at the power of this king. And then, in just four verses, Abram, well, takes him on and takes him out. It's absolute. I mean, it's, on the one hand, it's amazing, and on the other hand, it's kind of slightly disappointing, isn't it? I wanted a bit more of a battle here. But this is that moment where the one hobbit, the one hobbit destroys the ring of power. The one X-Wing takes out the entire Death Star by itself. And you wonder how. How could a mere nobody take out the entire Allied forces? Just think about it, right? In the earlier verses, every kingdom, every king, every army is wiped out by Ketelauma. But not Abram. Why does he receive the protection that no one else receives? And we find the answer in verses 17 to 24, the blessing of the two kings, the blessing of the two kings. You see, in these verses, we meet two kings, the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. In verse 16, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, he appears kind of out of nowhere. He brings bread and wine for this battle-weary army, and he gives Abram a blessing. I want us to notice a few details. Firstly, Melchizedek is not a Jew. He is part of Abra- he's not part of Abram's family. And so he sits outside God's people and outside God's promise. But secondly, notice his name. Now, I know many of your names have meanings behind them. I don't know what some of them mean, but many of them have meaning. Well, Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem or Jerusalem, literally the king of peace. Thirdly, notice that he's a priest to God Most High. So whoever he is, right, everyone wonders, who is Melchizedek, right? Well, we can say this much. Whoever he is, this king worships the God of Abram. He speaks for the God of Abram. And the blessing he gives is the promise of God's protection. Some of you here are married, and some of you are about to get married. And I always, I said this a few weeks ago, right? But I ask you guys, try and memorize your vows. It's nice to memorize. And I love the FIEC vows that we use at Cross and Crown, because the husband will stand up and make this promise. He promises to love and protect his wife as long as they both shall live. It's beautiful language. That's exactly what God is promising. Do you remember back in chapter 12 that promise of a new love? I'll bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. That's God saying, I will love and protect you in life and in death. It's a relationship of eternal blessing. 
eternal protection, eternal provision. And that's exactly what Melchizedek declares in verse 20. Blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. Friends, there's the answer. There's the answer we've been looking for. How can Abram the Hebrew defeat Kedalaomer the Great? How can a mere 318 men take on the entire allied forces? Not because of their power. All because of God's promise. It isn't actually Abram or his men who are fighting. They're not fighting the kings of the east. Believe it or not, it is God himself who fights for them. Have you ever thought of God as a warrior? God as a fighter, God as a soldier who promises to love and protect his people. Abram, he receives the true protection that no other kingdom and no other army receives all because of that one promise. See, if you want to find the one place of true protection, trust in God's promise. The king of Salem offers the blessing of God. Now, if we were to wrap up there, it's a beautiful ending, isn't it? But it doesn't stop because this king is not alone. You see, alongside the king of Salem is the king of Sodom and he is offering Abram the blessing of the world. In verse 21, he tells Abram, paraphrased, you won the war, so you get the spoils. You deserve it. Give me the people But you, you take the possessions for yourself. If you were Abram, what would you do? Would you take the blessings of this world? Just imagine, right? Fought a long and hard battle, defeated the military superpower of your age, and there all the spoils of war rightfully belonging to you. They're yours for the taking. Now let me be honest. If I were Abram, Man, I'd take it in a heartbeat, right? I'd be walking around putting labels with my name on absolutely everything. After all, I fought the battle, right? I put in the long hours. I stayed back. I did the hard yards. I deserve this blessing. Oh, can I tell you, if I were Abram, I'd take it all. All the money, all the credit, all the equity shares and post it on LinkedIn for everyone to see. But, Before you jump the gun too quickly, who's offering him the blessing? It's the king of Sodom. The king of the city of sin. You see, the first blessing comes from the king of righteousness, but no, this blessing, it comes from the king of wickedness. But it looks so pretty. If you were Abram, knowing where it comes from, would you still take it? Well, what does Abram say in verse 22? Here's my paraphrased version. Hell no. Hell no, I ain't taking anything from you. I don't want anyone to be able to say, I made Abram rich. No, you didn't make me rich. You didn't prosper me. You didn't protect me. God did. You see, Abram, he forfeits what the world says, you deserve it. 
It belongs to you. No, he says, I don't want anything of it. I don't want a cent of it. Because I don't want anyone to think that I am an ally of this world. Get this right. Abram, he sacrifices worldly riches so that everyone might see that true protection and true provision are not found in Sodom, but Salem. Not in wickedness, but in righteousness. Not in the world, but in the Lord. I love this story. Because this battle, it shows us the two blessings that are on offer to you this day. Will you accept the blessing of the King of Salem? The blessings of righteousness? Or the blessing of the King of Sodom? The blessings of this world? Which will you choose? Abram chooses wisely. Because he knows that place of true protection is not in this world's possessions, but in our God's promises. The battle of the nine kings. The blessing of the two kings. I now want all of us, absolutely every single one of us here, to make two commitments this year in light of this great battle. Two commitments, right? Someone said that New Year's resolutions are just your to-do list for the first week of January. Could be the case. Now that we're into week three, here's an opportunity to start again. Number one, commitment number one, God will fight for us. God will fight for us. Why did Abram prevail against the odds? Why did he receive the protection that no one else received? Not because of his power, all because of God's promise. You see, he was protected from the greatest superpower in the world, not because he fought, but because God fought for him. It's interesting, isn't it? So often when we're in a hostile world, talking to our non-Christian mates, part of us wants to, we feel the need to defend God or to fight for God. But God says, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. You don't fight for me. I will fight for you. I promise to love you and protect you in life and in death. And in Jesus, that's exactly what I've done. So do not be afraid. You see, when the world is unsafe, do not be afraid. When people harass you and hurt you, do not be afraid. When you are persecuted for living for Jesus, do not be afraid. When governments pass laws to stop the spread of the gospel, do not be afraid. You know, many of us work in industries where we feel the pressure of the world bearing down on our faith every single day. We feel the great powers of our society, especially our universities and our employers, often waging war against our gospel witness. It will never be codified in a a workplace policy but it will be in a workplace culture. In 2012, a friend of mine wrote an article online arguing uh, and defending uh, that marriage between a man and a woman is God's good design for our world. It wasn't long before someone wrote an email to his firm seeking to have him disciplined for publicly expressing that view. That was in 2012. And I can tell you right now, the situation is much more difficult today. So here's some questions. 
What should you do if you're asked to represent a client whose activities are contrary to God's good purposes in creation? Your partner comes to you and says, this is your client, work this case. What should you do if you're asked to provide a service that makes you complicit in ungodly living and violates your conscience before God? I know that some of you have already been confronted by these decisions. And I know that it's so easy to be afraid. It's so easy to give in. It's so easy to fear the world. It's so easy to feel like Abram as the allied forces advance on us and threaten to wipe us out. But friends, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. God will fight for you. Gosh, there are so many reasons to be afraid, aren't there? So many people of whom we might be afraid. But the one place of true protection is in the promises of God. God has promised to love you and protect you in life and in death. So be faithful to Him. Cling to Him. Live by His promises, come what may. And do not be afraid. Next time you're tempted to fear, open your Bibles and turn to Genesis 14. Just watch, sit back and watch and see how God fought for Abram against the greatest power of his day. Read this chapter and remember God's promise of a new love. God's vow to you to love and protect you in life and in death. Read Genesis 14. But don't stop there. Keep on reading. Get all the way to the Gospels and look at the cross. Because you see, it's at the cross that God delivered on this promise once and for all. It's at the cross where He defeated our last enemy, death itself. The cross is the victory of God over every evil power and every wicked king. The cross is the victory of God over death itself. Colossians 2.15 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He put them to shame. He triumphed over them all in Jesus. So often when we think about the cross of Christ, we only think about our individual forgiveness. We think about our reconciliation with God, but that's where it stops. No, 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 no. When you're afraid, look to the cross and see not just the forgiveness of your sins. No, look at the cross and see the defeat of the devil, the elimination of evil, the death of death and the victory of God. Oh no, when you look at the death of Christ, do not feel sorry for him. No, that is the throne of our king. Fellow Christian, are you afraid to speak of Jesus in your lectures and your tutes? Are you afraid to speak of Jesus at the office with your friends? Are you afraid to walk by faith, live by a promise, and say no to this world, come what may, bring it on? Some of you are starting full-time work this year, and it's a crazy year. If you survive this year, I'll be praying for you, right? Let me give you a gentle encouragement. Out yourself as a Christian on day one. Day one, right? 
As people get to know you, you go through that awkward orientation process and sit through three hours of OHNS training, right? When in that time, share the fact that you put your trust in Jesus. Be that guy. Why can you do that? Because God has promised to love and protect you in life and in death. Do not be afraid. Now, now that doesn't mean that you won't suffer. It doesn't mean that people won't mock you. It doesn't mean that you won't be mistreated, slandered, or maybe even fired for living for Jesus. I love those, you know, promise stickers that you can buy from Kurong, because they always selectively choose the nice-sounding verses out of the Bible. Here's a sticker that I want to make for you. 2 Timothy 3.12 All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a promise you can keep. But friends, in your suffering and in your hardship, do not be afraid. The world may win the battle, but they've already lost the war. And as King Jesus himself assures us, you will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Oh, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. If you're not a Christian, let me ask. When you look at around our world, with all of its conflict and all of its violence, when you look at our lives with, this, with death as an, our inevitable end, where will you find true protection? I mean, if not God, who will fight for you? Gosh, I don't know about you, but if I would say myself, I don't put a lot of stock behind my own strength. No, friend, I hope you realize that God came in Jesus to fight for us. Gosh, he came in Jesus to die for us. And if you stop trusting, uh, if you stop trusting yourself, and if you start trusting God's promise in Jesus, I can promise you, whatever happens, you will have nothing to fear. Commitment number one for this year, God will fight for us. Commitment number two, I will not take. I will not take. I just love what Abram says to the king of Sodom. Right, The king of Sodom must be coming to him expecting that Abram will go, yep, I'll take it all. What does Abram say? Hell no, I will not take absolutely anything from you. Not one cent, not one dollar. Boss, I don't want anyone to say that you made me rich. Man, Abram's got guts, right? He rejects the blessings of this world. And in doing so, do you realize that's a sacrifice? He might be placing himself far from prosperity, but he's placing himself close to promise. He resolves to accept not one cent from this world. Abram says, I'm not going to get close to sin, and I ain't even going to flirt with it. But Lot... Lot is that character throughout this series. He's a gift that just keeps on giving, right? If you want it free entertainment, just find Lot. Well, do you remember last week? Where was he living? He set up his tent on the plains of Jordan, facing Sodom. Outside the city, but looking at the city. Well, where is he now? He ain't just looking at the city. No, he's living in it. Somewhere between these two chapters, Lot's eyes and heart led his hands and feet into Sodom, where he made his home in the city of sin. Do you see that drift? But not Abram. He won't go near that city. 
He won't take a thing from its king. But Lot looks at it. Oh no, he longs for it. He flirts with it and he's captured by it. He wants it and he needs it. The king of Sodom, he can't say, I made Abram rich. Oh, but don't worry about Lot. Lot's kind of running, you know, he's just kind of rushing all the way into the city going, please, make me rich. It's a warning for us all. You see, if we take everything from this world, one day the world will take everything from us. Abram can reject the blessings of this world. Why? No, it's not a pointless sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that's worth it because I've got something far better. I've got the promises of God. Abram, he trusts God's promise to protect him and to provide for him. He, he sacrifices worldly blessings so that this sinful world cannot say, here's one of ours. I made Abram rich. It's a great test for our own hearts, isn't it? So here's the test. If your non-Christian friend were to look at your life and how you live, what would they say? Option A, oh, he's great, he's so successful, so wealthy, he's just happy because he's got so much. And he's got everything I want, everything that the world has to offer, that's exactly what he goes for. Oh gosh, I want to be like him. Or, I just don't get her. She doesn't have much, but she doesn't seek much. She's so content, free, kind of fearless. It seems that the ambitions that she has aren't the same as mine. No, whatever her God wants, that's what she runs after. If your non-Christian friend were to look at your life, what might they say? I made Abram rich. You see, Abram has a choice. The blessings of God or the blessings of this world. And that same choice faces us all. Whose blessing will you seek? I read somewhere, I searched for an hour online and I couldn't find who said it, so I'm just going to steal it and footnote, source unknown. And it was something to the effect of, if you can't get your blessing from God, you'll demand it from the world. I think it's true, all of us want approval for our lives, for how we live. Well, if God won't approve how we live, we'll seek it from someone else, won't we? Friends, let me ask, are you so satisfied with the promises of God that you would gladly sacrifice worldly gain so that everyone might see the God who provides for you? Abram resolved, I will not take. The question is, will we resolve the same? Will we say things like, I will not join those people who lead me away from God. I understand the social cost. I will not go to that event where I know I will be led into sin. I know the social cost. Or will you be like Lot, who flirted with Sodom, who tried to get as close to the line as possible and ended up stumbling straight into the city of sin? You know, so often we overestimate our abilities, don't we? 
We think we can have it both ways. So we ask stupid questions like this. How great can my ambitions grow without being idolatrous? How much money can I earn without being greedy? How many houses can I own without settling down? How far can I physically go with my girlfriend or boyfriend without crossing the line? No, it is the folly of Lot to flirt with the city of sin. How? How then do you resist the powers of this world, seek to capture us just like Sodom captured Lot? It's not just brute force. No, you fight it with a greater confidence in the promises of God. You see, when you know, when you are sure, when you are confident that God will never leave you, when you know in the marrow of your bones that God will always love you and always protect you, you will not run to Ketalaoma for protection, from Ketalaoma for protection, and you will not run to Sodom for provision. No, because you know that you have a place of true protection. You know that you have a place of true provision. You know that in the promises of God, you've got it all. That is how you fight sin. In 1945, uh, the scientists who developed the first atomic weapons founded what they call the Doomsday Clock. And this clock is a symbol that represents the likelihood of a man-made global catastrophe. And midnight is the crisis point. Every year, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, they assess the threats to our world and they decide how far are we from midnight. In 2020, the clock was set at 100 seconds to midnight as the world lives under the shadow of nuclear war and climate change. And at least according to this clock, our world is not safe. Statement of the obvious. Friends, we are always living between the clash of civilizations. We are always living between the conflict of kings. And let's face it, there are so many reasons, aren't there, for us to be afraid? No, the only question left remaining is this. Where can we find true protection? Where is the one place of true protection? Genesis 14 calls us to see that God's promise protects us from the greatest powers of this world. So do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Let's pray. Almighty God, Sovereign King, we trust in your every promise to love us and protect us in life and in death through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.